listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Let me pray, and then we'll work our way through uh, 1 Corinthians 16. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how kind you have been to us as we have studied 1 Corinthians. How in your providence you have helped us as a church to deal with difficult and weighty truths. And now as we come to the conclusion of this letter, I pray that you would give us your spirit that alone gives us wisdom, that alone can show us truth. There's more present in this room than just your words and our intellect. There is the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit who brings light and truth and shows us wondrous things from your word. Lord, I confess my inadequacy, my frailty, my hypocrisy. And so would you help us now in spite of me and would you make this word alive to our hearts. For the Christians in this room, would you stir our affections for Jesus and for people that are in this room who have not yet trusted in Christ and certainly there are many with a crowd this size. I pray, Lord, that you would cause them to pass from death to life you would give them the gift of repentance and faith so that they might see Jesus and they might trust in him for the first time for eternal life. I pray that you would do these things for your glory and for the joy of your people. Amen. All right, well, let's read. Chapter 16, verse 1. Paul writes, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church of Galatia, churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So what's happening here in these first four verses is Paul is, is encouraging the Corinthians to be generous for the work of the gospel. In particular, he is encouraging them to remember some poorer Christians who were in Jerusalem. When Paul had a, a meeting with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem who were wondering about the gospel he was preaching and were trying to get clear about you know, what Paul was doing in his missionary efforts, and they came to realize that the gospel is not about you know, adding Jesus to their Jewish customs, but that the gospel comes through faith in Christ alone. And, and, and Paul was released by this Jerusalem church to... to to take the gospel to the Roman Empire, one of the things that he said is he wanted, hey, to this Jerusalem church, he said, I want to remember the poor people here in this church. And so Paul had a sort of uh, mercy ministry where he was not only taking the gospel to all these cities that he planted the church in Corinth and Galatia and Ephesus and Thessalonica and other places, but he's also along the way encouraging people that as the gospel hits their hearts, as they surrender their lives to Jesus, that they surrender their whole lives and that they become generous people who orient everything in their life to gospel-centered work. And so that's what he's encouraging these Christians in Corinth to do. And just, a, uh, just one little thought. We could spend just these four verses talking about Christians and giving in the New Testament versus the Old Testament. A lot of times we think about, in fact, we even use the word tithe and we get occasionally a question in our new member class about what Crosspoint believes about giving and whether or not we believe in upholding this Old Testament notion of tithe. Well, the New Testament really 
uh, we're not under the law in the New Testament. Jesus has, re- has absorbed and fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. And oftentimes in our sort of Bible Belt Southern culture, Christians use the tithe as something to sort of accomplish so that they might have some sort of favor from God. And that's a very dangerous place to be spiritually when you're sort of using some sort of accomplishment to bring God's blessing. In fact, that's the heir of the prosperity gospel. And so what this text is really telling us, along with a few other texts in the New Testament, specifically Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, is that that as Christians in this new covenant of grace with Jesus, we're really freed from some sort of regulation or law or some sort of binding concept of the tithe, and we're freed to live lives of radical generosity. And so just a sort of summary of how Christians should think about giving in the New Testament, they should think about giving generously, regularly, sacrificially, and joyfully with the ministry of their local church as a, as a priority. And so people ask us a lot, you know, how do we, we don't ask you how much you give, I don't know how much you give, I don't, I don't even handle that. We talk about it in the new member class, but I think that as a result of the gospel and the good news of Jesus hitting the heart of a Christian, that that should produce a sort of generosity in the life of a believer, not just in their finances, but in everything in their life. And clearly, Paul is encouraging the Corinthians along those lines. Let's continue in verse 5. He says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Let me just stop there and say, you know, this whole letter of 1 Corinthians has been marked with conflict. And then he's going to write another letter to them that we know of as 2 Corinthians. And that's, again, marked with conflict. In fact, the theme of 2 Corinthians is the difficulty that Paul has had in pastoral ministry because of these obstinate, sinful, carnal Corinthians. And yet Paul says, I don't want to come in just for a little, a little weekend stop. He says, I don't want to see you just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you. Which runs counter to just my natural thinking. You know, if I have a little dust up or a disagreement with somebody, and I happen to bump into them at the grocery store, or I see them at Lowe's down the aisle, my natural inclination is to walk the other way and act like I didn't see them. Am I the only person that does that? Come on, we've played the avoidance game, haven't we? You know, you're like in the checkout line at Target right next to them, and you, you just, you, God forbid you make eye contact because you have to actually talk to that brother or sister who you're sort of tangled up with. Evidently, I'm the only one who plays those types of immature games. I, but Paul has, Paul has, he's got some issues with the Corinthians. But yet he doesn't let those issues separate his heart. I mean, just, just dwell on that fact for just a moment. How in their relational problems, Paul was insistent that this didn't break fellowship and that it didn't separate them and they become some sort of distant, sort of passive-aggressive Christians who are mired in a sort of unspoken conflict that dominates the rest of their lives. I am convicted by that. If I had to deal with the Corinthian church like Paul did, 
I would have probably thrown a few good riddance in the final chapter, but he doesn't say that. He says, I, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Paul, Paul had a deep understanding of the sovereignty of God. Reynolds referred to it just a little bit about the difference between the richest nation in the world and then the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. Have we thought about just how, how really being in this country just sort of lulls us to sleep and teaches us this lie that we are in control of our lives? And Paul was under this profound sense of the providence of God in all areas of his life. And you often see this sort of tagline that Paul throws on the end of sentences in his letters, if the Lord permits. This is what James writes, James, the, the half-brother of Jesus, in his book that we know now uh, know of as the book of James. He says in James 4, verses 13 through 15, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you, you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Paul was a man who lived under and with a deep sort of abiding reality and sense of the sovereignty and providence of God in all things. If the Lord permits, he would spend some time with Corinthians. Verse 8. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. I think those two truths should go together in, in our minds, and we should realize what happened in the life of Paul. He was a man who was obviously tremendously blessed by God and had so much fruit in his life, but yet the blessing that God worked in his life did not translate into a sort of barrier-free ministry. In fact, we can even go to the other uh, way and say that actually the trials that Paul had to endure as a minister of the gospel were in a sense a sort of validation of the authenticity of his ministry. In fact, that's the point he makes in his second letter to the Corinthians. They were saying to him that they didn't think he was a true apostle of Jesus because of all the difficulty he had. And they, it was like this, the beginnings of the health and wealth prosperity gospel that, is so, that we so are diseased by in our nation. It was this sort of wretched line of thinking that if, if you are truly blessed by God, you will have no sickness or you will have no trial or you will have no obstacle. And Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, actually seems to say the very opposite thing that these trials and difficulties and this shipwreck and this beating and these, these uh, fights that he had with these beasts in Ephesus and, the, and all of the difficulty that he had was a sort of validation of God's work in his life. And in fact, God uses those things to make less of Paul and more of himself. And so, you know, sometimes I get a little nervous when things are going so well at our church. You know, no obstacles. Everybody gets along, singing kumbaya. I'm just sort of waiting for some, some sort of scheme of the enemy to rear his ugly head. Friends, do you realize we are in a spiritual battle? Do you realize we live in a place that, where there are churches on every street corner, but the true reality of the gospel is often lost in our community? 
And do you realize that when a church rises up and wants to take Jesus and his gospel seriously and clarify what the gospel is and call people to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus and forsake the things that we have dealt with in Corinthians to turn from sin and to turn towards Jesus. Friends, when you do that, do you realize you rustle, you, you, you kick up a, a sort of brood of vipers, a, 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 a pit of snakes? Do you realize that there is an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy? He wants to thwart our efforts as a church. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy dads. He wants to, he wants to take people out. And sometimes we can just sort of lull ourselves to Sleep thinking that, well, the room is full, lights are still on this Sunday, air conditioner's working, Brad's still working through Corinthians, I wonder when we're going to be done. And we just sort of, we're like the seven dwarves. You know, we're just, hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to, and we just get lulled to sleep. And do you realize that it's in those moments when we especially need to realize that, that, there, that God has been good to us. He's opened an effective door of ministry for us as a church by no merit of our own. In fact, in spite of us, in spite of me, I was talking to somebody last night. I went to eat with a couple young military guys that have been going to the church. I was talking to some folks about Crosspoint in these six years, just starting off with a few people. Friends, believe me, the reason that God has been good to us is not because of any wisdom or any gifting on the part of me or anybody in this leadership. Friends, we started this church in a school 20 miles in the middle of nowhere, tucked away, we, just completely unwise, didn't do one bit of advertising. I have made many horrible, terrible decisions as a pastor. I have been racked with the fear of man and insecurity. I have done things for selfish reasons. I have been a very mediocre at best pastor. But yet in spite of all that, God seems to be blessing us. And friends, if we just think we can just take that and go like the devil's not upset with this or there's no enemy. Friends, we are, we're, we're, we're living a pipe dream. And if you think you can raise a little girl in the gospel, and if you think you're a, a dad that can stick a stake in the ground and say, I'm going to lead my family for Christ, and there will be no opposition, you're living a pipe dream. There is an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy, and who'll do whatever he can to thwart the advancement of the gospel in our city. Friends, do you realize that? This is not the quaint little Bible Belt South. This is a war zone for the hearts and minds of people. What lulls us to sleep often is that the angel will come as a, or the, the devil will come as an angel of light, he says in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul writes. And he will lure our hearts away with religion and self-effort and trusting in stuff. Friends, make no mistake, we're, we're fighting a war. God has obviously opened up doors for us as a people, as he opened up doors for Paul. And there are many adversaries. There are many adversaries. This is what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion, seeking someone to devour. You realize that, dads? Do we realize that, brothers and sisters? We're going to fight here. We're going to fight for the hearts, for our own hearts, and for the hearts and minds of people in our city and all around the world for the sake of the gospel. Well, let's keep going. Verse 10. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way 
in peace that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Timothy was Paul's protege in the ministry. He was this young man who, along with others, Titus and many others, but in particular Timothy and Titus, it seemed as though Paul poured his life into Timothy's life for the good of the gospel. Let me just ask us a question. Of course, none of us in this room have reached the level of Paul, but I think there's a principle here. Paul is pouring his life into a younger, less mature Christian. Who are you pouring your life into? You've been a Christian for six months. Maybe there's a Christian around you who's been a Christian for three months. You've been a Christian for ten years. Certainly there's somebody in this room or in your sphere of influence who you can come alongside and just pour your life into. In fact, we as a church want to do that in a much more intentional and thoughtful way, and that's the impetus behind our, our discipleship training. We want Christians to get together and for people to just sort of unpack what they have in Jesus to a younger and less mature Christian. And friends, don't buy the lie that you are not qualified to do that. Friends, if it, it, you, you are far more qualified to just meet one-on-one with another Christian than I am to pastor this church, believe me. And so Paul is pouring his life into a young person, I think it should be the regular rhythm of life for every Christian to be giving some of their life away to a younger Christian so that the work of the gospel can advance. Verse 12, he writes, Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Think about this. This is, this is just another one of those verses that we can read and say, ah, oh, well, yeah, Apollos is... You realize Apollos was one of the guys that the Corinthians were pitting against Paul. And so in the first couple chapters, I know it's been seven or eight months since we read them and studied them, but Apollos was one of the people that Paul, uh, that, that some of the Corinthians were following because Apollos was a young Christian who evidently was very, very gifted, very eloquent. He was a great preacher, and the Lord saved him. And then Apollos began to preach, and Apollos was used in the planting and establishment of the Corinthian church. And he was so gifted that some of the Corinthians were sort of following him and taking kind of sides with a particular charismatic personality. But the thing about Paul is he's not threatened by that at all. In fact, there was no issue between Paul and Apollos. They seemed to be tight. But the people in their insecurity and immaturity wanted to sort of be with the hip young guy We're sort of wanting to take sides. But yet, as we come to the end of the letter, we see here that Paul has an utter lack of ego. I mean, you would think that if there was maybe this thought that he really wanted to exert his authority with the Corinthians, that maybe he would just sort of leave Apollos out, you know? Let's not not mention that name because it might sort of, you know, it it might be, you know, the people in the church that I'm writing to that are particularly attracted to or have an affinity with Apollos. You know, I don't even want to go down there. In fact, I would rather that Apollos not go there because, because more people might go to his Bible study than mine, right? I mean, he, so, so if, you know, I, we, most of us would sort of play it close to the vest and, you know, just conveniently not mention Apollos. But that's not the way Paul goes. Do you see how utterly devoid of ego and self-promotion he is? You got this hotshot young preacher who evidently is preaching truth and has got some people attracted to his ministry, and Paul is encouraged by that. Look, I know how it is. 
Look, here in a couple years, I'm going to start slipping up, not saying things right, and maybe some other young cat will come along and be kind of sharp. And it, 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 it. Brad who? What? Who? I mean, that's fine. Paul's mantra in his life was to preach Jesus, die, and be forgotten. <laughs> How often do we maneuver, even in just our friendships, to make much of ourselves? And we withhold information or we lob little verbal volleys to just sort of skew the conversation this way or we, we express some sort of restrained doubt about the ability of some person who were a little jealous. Oh, God forbid, we wouldn't actually say something that you could run with and kind of say, oh, well, this person gossip about you. But we just sort of throw out a little, a little doubting sin. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Johnny's leading a Bible study. Oh. Yeah. No, I'm sure it's going to be good. I'm sure you should go. You should, you should go to it. No. Su- Suze? Oh, you're meeting with Susie on Tuesday mornings? Oh, yeah. Oh, Susie's a good sister. Good sister. Paul doesn't go there. He, he doesn't hedge. He says, man, I wish Apollos could come back. I wish Apollos could come back. And I don't care if you get Jesus from Apollos or you get Jesus from me. Just get Jesus. Do you see that? I don't even know if the Holy Spirit intended that to come from verse 12, but that's what I got out of it. Paul's utter lack of ego. It wasn't about him. 13. And 13, verse 13, seems like a sort of shot across the bow. Paul sort of has like, uh, he'll just say stuff that doesn't seem disconnected to everything. This is one of those sentences that just sort of jumps out. It says, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Just out of nowhere, Paul clicks it in. It's like he wants to grab the the hearts and minds of the men in Corinth and just give them a little reminder. Hey, listen here. You are the glory of God. Men, do you realize that? Do you realize that the scriptures say something about you in particular as men? 1 Corinthians 11, we talked about it several months ago. Men are the glory of God. Every now and again, I have somebody fuss at me a little bit about the, the sort of masculine sort of tone of Crosspoint. Rare, rarely, actually, does that happen. But occasionally, I've heard you know, people say things. Listen, friends, that is not because we don't love women here at all. We love women. But listen, the, the problem with the world is male passivity and the solution to a vast majority of the ills in our culture and world is men who have submitted their hearts to Christ who lead their families and women and treat women and children with Christ-like humility. And, and so Paul writes to these men in Corinth and he says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Men, you are strategically important to the advancement of the gospel in such a way that only you can do it. And don't read this verse as a sort of imperative. Don't read this verse full of religion. See, one of the things that would, I think is really a key to reading Paul's letters and, and reading the New Testament is a little, a little history lesson, or a little, a little grammar lesson here, is, is we, we need to read the indicatives before we read the imperatives. What does that mean? There are things that Paul will say in the scriptures 
that are indicative language. It means that Christ has done this and made you this. You didn't do it. You didn't do it. That's an indicative. That's a, that's a statement. Jesus died on the cross and made us alive, Ephesians 2. That's what that says. And then from that indicative, from that truth, from what Jesus has done, flows an imperative. Therefore, be this type of man. And you see the subtle difference when we, when we put the imperative before the indicative truth. When we say, be this type of man so that Jesus will accept you. That's not the gospel, friends. The gospel is the indicative. It's what Jesus has done first, and then from that flows the gospel imperative. And when we mix those two things up, the one is death, it's religion. The one is unattainable. The other is grace and Christ-centered. Did you see that? So Paul is not just out of nowhere saying, strap it up, man. Come on, be a better guy. In light of everything else that he has said in this letter about how Jesus has won the victory for us on the cross, and Jesus alone who takes our sin, and Jesus alone who gives us new life and faith, and even gives the gifts of faith and repentance. In light of that, now you can do this. You see, see, that's the gospel. It's not religion. And so men realize that the message of Christianity is not stop downloading that or brush yourself up or be better or try harder. The message of the gospel is, is that Jesus has done this for you. Turn from self-reliance. Turn from self-effort and trust in Jesus. And by the empowerment of his Holy Spirit and his righteousness which he gives you, you, you now can be watchful. You can stand firm. You can act like a man. You can be strong. Let's keep going in verse 15. He says, Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. Paul was a church planter, pastor, who needed help. And he's encouraging the church to acknowledge and respect and benefit from the ministry of these other men, in particular Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus. That's, a, that's something that we as a church, I think, need to understand and grab hold of as well. Um, as our church continues to grow, uh, there's just no way that the pastors who are here right now can continue to be all things to all people. I, I feel every time I need to mention this or, or think along these lines, it, it always feels sort of self-serving as if, as if, you know, I'm kind of the center of everything and I'm not. But, but Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to respect the ministry of other men. And you, we do that as a church. You, you, you respect, not just me, you respect all the leaders here and and I know that joyfully you will receive Wayne Sheely as he joins our staff in a week or so. But this is just an important reminder to us. One of the great challenges, one of the things that I have not done well as a pastor, as a young pastor with a growing church, is in certain situations help people transition from relying on me to relying on the greater ministry of the church. And it, it kind of seems like some people, when they come into the church, maybe when we just had 50 people or we came into the church when they had, we had 150 people, and they, they sort of kind of come in thinking that, that my relationship or Reynolds' relationship or Don's relationship or Will's is going to be kind of the same all the way through, but as the church grows, 
and we, we're thinking about and connecting with other people. But one of my regrets is that there's been some people that have, have kind of just fallen through the cracks, and I think who who have been hurt even by what they would consider some negligence on on my part in particular as a pastor. And one of the things I haven't done is teach well along this line. And in, in, in some instances early on in the church, I think I just became too central in people's lives. And it's caused pain, honestly. It's caused regret. It's caused hurt and pain. And Paul here is saying that, that he's not the sinner. Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus came. And he's saying, give recognition to such men. As he talked about Apollos, it's not about whether or not Paulus is primary in your life, or I'm primary in your life. It's about Christ. And it's about us growing together as a people on mission. And it's about you as well, Corinthians, pouring into somebody's life like I am pouring into Timothy's. Well, let's keep going. In verse 19, he writes in the church of the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca. Also, uh, that's the same lady, Priscilla, that we read about. On the first message of Corinthians, Aquila and Priscilla are a couple that helped Paul plant the church in Corinth. They were fellow tent makers with him. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. A couple things on these two verses. is There's this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, or Prisca, that just show up three or four times in the New Testament. First, we see them in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 18, they were tent makers, which is what Paul was vocationally. And they were Paul's first contact. Paul stayed with them in Corinth when he first came to Corinth. And they were the only other believers there. And this little, th- group, this little small group of three planted the church in Corinth, and, and it became the Corinthian church. And then Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila is the man, even though it, it ends in an A. We don't think of but that the name Aquila was a, a male name in Latin, and he then they go with Paul to Ephesus, and they help him plant the church in Ephesus, and then we find them later at the end of Rome, uh, in the, at the end of the book of Romans, they've planted a church evidently out of their house in, Romans, in, in Rome, in the letter of Romans in chapter 16, and then we see them again in 2 Timothy at the end of Paul's life, where evidently they are now back in Ephesus, and here's this gospel-centered couple who evidently by virtue of the fact that they moved around from Corinth to Ephesus to Rome and then back to Ephesus with their, evidently their tent-making business, were probably well-to-do, were probably wealthy people, and they were giving their lives away for the sake of the gospel. They saw their vocation as just fuel for their mission here on this earth to make much of Jesus. And I pray that our, our church would be full of Aquilas and Priscas, people that that see life, even if they're not vocationally in ministry, as just to be given away for the advancement of the kingdom. The church is built on people like Aquila and Prisca. And I thank God that we have Aquilas and Priscas in our church, and we need more of them. And then in verse 20, I just see this affection in the body. It says, all the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, if you're a young college guy that's getting ready to join this um, study that Robert is going to do on Thursdays, this is not an endorsement for you to um, saddle up next to the uh, cute girl in the congregation and just plant one on her and tell her that you are obeying the mandate of Scripture in verse 20. (laughs) That'd be quite a line. You'd probably get slapped, and then you'd get tackled by an usher. But, But do you see the... 
just the affection that these people have for one another. Um, I, my dad's side of the family was Italian. In fact, tomorrow, Monday through Friday, I'm going to be out of town with my second oldest son, Jacob. He just turned 10, and it's started a tradition in our family where when my boys turn 10, I take them to New York City for a little heritage tour. And so Jacob and I are going to go to uh, see where Grandpa Evangelista came to America, and then we're going to go up to West Point and see where Daddy went to school and go see the Statue of Liberty and, and uh, you know, all the neat sights in New York City. But I remember my grandfather had the kind of classic Italian pompadour, hair on his nose growing out of the top of his nose. Um, he wore those button-across slacks with no belt like Frank Sinatra. Um, he spoke with his hands. But there was this, even as rough as he was <laughs> in a lot of ways, and, you know, every other word was the universal Italian adjective, and I'll let that to your imagination. But he, he, he just had this affection about him. He'd grab us and kiss us on the cheek, and there was just, just this affection here in this Corinthian church. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Let's have a, a, a church full of sanctified huggers. You know what I'm talking about? And again, back to you college guys. There's ways to do a sanctified hug. You know what I'm talking about? Not full frontal. So if you're hugging some girl, it's not, it's not, it's kind of the A-frame. Give it the A-frame. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> or you go side to side on it, right? Right? But there's just this sort of affection that, I'm sorry, I keep looking at you guys. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what, what's going on. You just, this is just the splash zone right here. But, but there's this sort of sanctified, Christ-centered affection that Paul is calling for in the Corinthian church. And do you realize that when, when that happens, friends, there's just sort of a tenderness, there's a joy, there's a, there's, it just melts the heart of insecure people to be hugged and greeted and encouraged and loved on a little bit. I know that happens here. But... Here's just an opportunity for us to say, let's drill down on that one. And let's be a gospel-centered, affectionate people. All right, let's end with these three verses. I, Paul, this is great. This is, uh, this is just such a, you know, Paul, you ever had that guy that at the party or whatever, the company Christmas party, the guy who just sort of says, like, strangely awkward, inappropriate things, just sort of blurts them out. You're just having a nice conversation, talking about college football or whatever. And some guy just sort of throws something out there, like, whoa, where, where'd that come from? And then it kind of, everybody sort of walks away, you know. Well, Paul just drops this gospel bomb just as he's saying goodbye. Listen to this. This is great. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Oh, Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Did you get that? Did you get to verse 22? Paul is just saying, hey, give each other a hug. Greet one another. You know, the friends, and they give you greetings. I write this greeting with my own hand. If anybody loves Jesus, let him be cursed. And oh, I really love you guys. Whoa, whoa, Paul, whoa. Whoa. Do you see how consumed he's? What, what's the clue there? What, what's that? Why is that even in there? Friends, I think the clue there is that Paul is so absorbed with the reality of the gospel and the good news and the work of Jesus is that he can't get it. He can't even say goodbye without communicating the gravity and the seriousness of the truth of the gospel. So he's telling them to 
give each other a kiss on the cheek and he's sending greetings. And oh, by the way, if you don't love Jesus, you're cursed. Friends, do you realize that's the whole heart? In fact, you could sum up the letter of Corinthians with that one word, with that one sentence. The issue is not acting better. The issue is not make yourself a church that agrees with one another more. The issue is not stop sinning. The issue is not handle communion better. The issue is not a better doctrinal understanding of the resurrection. The issue is not a church that handles spiritual gifts better. At the core, the issue for Paul and the issue for us is do we love Jesus? And do we realize the consequences of not loving Jesus? This isn't just morality or a a sort of Western ethic. Paul is saying, do we love Jesus? Friends, do you realize that's the heart of it all? Do we love Jesus? I had some time uh, this week by myself. Jennifer took the kids to the beach with a friend, and so I was just alone. I sort of asked myself some questions about my own affections, about my own heart, about the way I'm wired, and about the things that stir me. Do I just, is my heart stirred with love for Jesus? Do I love him? What am I about? What are you about? I think the way we do church in America can very often lull us to sleep. We've sort of bought into this mentality that if I can kind of go through the motions and act right and maintain a certain exterior, really, I can, I can pass. I can get by. But Paul is asking us a question. In fact, he's making a statement. You have to love Jesus. You have to love him. Do you love Jesus, friends? Do you love him more than yourself? Do you love him more than your future? Do you love him more than the hope of having a good marriage? Do you love him more than raising a kid who will make you proud? Do you love him more than the success of your military career and promotion you might get? Do you love him more than your own reputation? Do I love him more than a church that is growing and thriving? Do I love him more than the the acclaim and the certain sort of status I get as the pastor of this church? Do I love him more than that? Do we love Jesus? Do we love him more than sin? Do we love him more than the temptation of the flesh? Do we love him more than that, friends? Do we love him more than comfort? Do we love him more than avoiding pain? Do we love Jesus? Thomas Chalmers was a Scottish pastor in the early 1800s. He was a wonderful preacher and teacher in Edinburgh, Scotland. And he preached this sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Not explosive, but expulsive. That, in other words, to expel, to get rid of. The, the expulsive power of a new affection. 
fact, you can, this is a, a famous sermon. You can Google Thomas Chalmers, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, and read that sermon this afternoon, and it will enrich your soul. And in this sermon, Chalmers is making this one point, that the key to the Christian life is not more doctrinal knowledge or so much as fighting sin or living a particular moral or healthy life, but the beginning of it all is loving Jesus and the only way that, that we can actually be victorious over all these things that entangle us is to have the greater affection of Jesus just encapsulate and take over our soul. And so he's saying that the only thing that can push out this world from our heart is the greater new affection of Jesus. This is what he says. Two quotes from Chalmers that just floored me as I read this sermon. He says, the only way to dispossess an old affection, whatever that old affection may be, sin or status or whatever, the only way to get rid of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. In the gospel, do we so behold God as that we may love God? It is there and there only where God stands revealed as an object of confidence to sinners. So what Chalmers is saying is that that the heart of the gospel, the heart of Christianity, I think the heart of what Paul is saying to this whacked out, sinful, messed up Corinthian church that he would say to us is that it's not so much as don't do this and do this and have this little spiritual checklist and do all these sort of outward things that make us satisfied with where we are with Jesus. But the question is, is our heart, do we have affection for Jesus? And that only truly loving Jesus can expel all of the other things in our hearts. And that when we behold God, it's the only thing that can satisfy our soul. He goes on to say later on in that sermon, the spirit of adoption is poured upon us. It is then that the heart brought under the mastery of one great and predominant affection, meaning the love of Jesus, the heart being brought under the mastery of one great and predominant affection is delivered from the tyranny of its former desires and is the only way that deliverance is possible. Young man that's struggling with sexual sin, do you realize that the only way out of sexual sin is not to resist your temptation and grin and bear it because that flesh will fail. The only way to dispossess, to fight your battle with the false beauty is to fall in love with something far more beautiful, which is Jesus. Friends, do we realize the only way to fight our insecurity because we don't have the sort of prestige that we want or the advancement that we want, the only way to fight that lesser fallen beauty of security is to fall in love with something more beautiful, which is Jesus. The only way to guard your heart from the idolatry that exists in every corner, the only way that I think I can stay sane and do this for another 40 years and not have my heart be wrecked by all of the insecurity of pastoral ministry is to fall in love with something greater than ministry success, greater than a church, and that's Jesus. The only way that you can parent, the only way that you can raise kids and not have your heart just be drugged on the ground and trampled over by a a rebellious teenager. The only way to have your head on straight and endure the difficulties of even the best of marriages, the only way to do that is to fall in love with something greater, which is Jesus. 
The only way to endure a terrible report from a doctor, the only way to walk through a, a sickness with a friend who may be dying of brain cancer is to fall in love with something greater than health and wealth here on this earth. And it's Jesus, the only way. In fact, the whole point of Corinthians is not stop sinning. It's love Jesus. Love Jesus, friends. Love Jesus. And so here's the question for me and for you. Do you love Jesus? I'm not asking you to repeat a rote prayer or to check your box or to do something religious. Do you love Jesus? Brad, do you love Jesus? Do you love him? Do you love him? Do you love him? Do you love Jesus? Right now, the Holy Spirit is asking us that question. Do you love Jesus? Let's pray. Father, by your spirit now, would you come? And for my Christian friends in this room, would you break through our callousness and our, our religiosity? And would you stir our affections for Jesus so that we would return to our first love and that we would love you more the predominant affection of Jesus would consume our hearts. And for my friends in this room who are not yet believers in Jesus, would you help them push past the lies that they have heard about what it means to be a Christian, the false presentations of the gospel that they've heard, that they have to do better, and would you simply cause them to see Jesus so that they might love him? And would you give them the gift of repentance and faith so that they would turn from self-love and turn in faith towards Jesus, love for Jesus. Friends, if you're not a Christian and it has become clear to you that you're not or you walked into this room knowing that you're not, friends, the issue is do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Call on him right now. Look to him. Trust in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Speak to Jesus even now. Tell him that you love him. The fact that you're even thinking the way you're thinking right now, I believe is very strong evidence that he's giving you a new heart to even have the ability to love him and turn from all of those lesser affections and have your life, have your heart and your mind dominated by the love of Jesus. Do that right now. Don't make it a formula. Don't overcomplicate it. Tell Jesus you love him. Tell him you want to follow him even right now. And Lord, I pray that you'd do these things. I pray now that as we respond to you, that you would give us great hope and confidence in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.